Dear Lord, thank you for your word, the Bible. We ask that you bless us now as we listen. Help us to learn to love your more each day. In your name, amen. Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The word of the Lord. On this second Sunday of Advent, we are looking again at the story of Mary from the Gospel of Luke. Last week, we looked at the first half of the story and how she received the announcement that her son would be the savior of the world. In the verses that we heard today, uh, we see how she responds to the news, especially in this great song, the Magnificat, uh, this, this great song of thanksgiving and praise. And that's what we're going to take a, a careful look at today, is her song. And as we do that, I want to invite you to consider three ways in which Mary responds. In this song, Mary looks backwards, she looks forwards, and she looks up. Let me explain. First, Mary looks backwards. In the opening lines, Mary's song is a very personal expression of praise. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Mary is deeply aware of God's faithfulness to her, However, as you come to the end of the song, 
you see that the scope of the praise has widened to the whole nation of Israel and its history. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. By the end of the song, Mary is looking back to the founding of the nation in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, uh, the promise that God would bless Abraham and his family, make him into a great nation, and bless the families of the earth through him. From Mary's vantage point, everything that is transpiring in her life through her miraculous pregnancy can be related to God's faithfulness to his people, Israel. It's not just about her and God. It's about God and his people. And this is woven into the Magnificat in every line. Every single verse contains allusions or quotations from the Old Testament scriptures, including the Psalms, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Job, 1 Samuel, Micah, and probably several others. So why is it important that Mary looks back to remember God's faithfulness to his people in these ways. Well, this shows that you cannot understand Jesus and the whole Christmas story without putting it in the context of the grand overarching narrative of the Bible. Our celebration of Christmas becomes superficial, not just when we become consumeristic in our approach to the season, which can happen so easily, our celebration of Christmas is already thin when we isolate the stories of Mary and Joseph, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the shepherds or the magi, and we isolate them and we treat them as heartwarming, sweet fables, but not a part of the larger story of which they are individual scenes. But when you read them instead, as we've been emphasizing this morning, in the context of Advent, as great dramatic moments at the culmination of hundreds of years of waiting and anticipation and trusting and looking and hoping, you realize the power and significance that's contained in these events. God's promise-making and promise-keeping becomes central, tying the whole story of salvation history together. He has helped his servant Israel he has remembered his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. The way Mary remembers God's mercy through the ages teaches us to do the same. Our lives become thin and superficial when we isolate our own life stories from the larger story of which we are a part. And if you've been baptized in the name of the triune God, the story of your life is a part of the story of God's faithfulness and mercy from generation to generation, going all the way back to Abraham. This is why, by the way, the, the attitude of Christians towards our Jewish friends and our, our Jewish Christian friends should always be one of respect and honor for our shared heritage. As Paul says in Romans 11, Gentile Christians are like branches that have been grafted into an olive tree. The, the root of the tree remains the history of Abraham and Sarah's family, the Jewish people. 
So Christians should be among the first people to stand up against any form of anti-Semitism. There's just one last thing that I want to highlight about the way Mary looks back over this great history and how she celebrates what God has done. Notice that God is the primary actor here. He is the subject of almost every verb. Everything depends on God's action for those who believe. He looks down on our humble estate. He does great things. He shows strength. He brings down the mighty and exalts the humble. The gospel gives us hope that God has acted not just for one young woman, but for all humanity in the person and work of Jesus. We always come with our need and weakness, and God meets us in his strength and power. As the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from prison before being executed by the Nazis, he said, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those troubled in soul who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. This brings us to our second point today. We've seen how Mary looks backwards, but she also looks forwards. We see this in three ways in the song. First, verse 48 says, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary envisions future generations blessing her name because of her role in redemptive history. Second, verse 50 says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. To fear God in the Bible doesn't mean to be terrified, but to Show him reverence. And Mary is saying that the mercy of God is for anyone who looks to him with this kind of reverence for generations to come. Finally, verses 51 to 53 show us Mary's forward-looking vision. Let me read them again, uh, beginning in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary speaks here in the past tense as if all of these things were already accomplished, but not every proud person has been humbled or every hungry person fed. What she is saying is that God has acted so decisively that from this point on, the world will be a different kind of place. And in this, she looks forward to a world that has been renewed and healed of its wrongs and injustices. It's for this reason that throughout history, the Magnificat has often been taken up as a protest song among people who are disenfranchised or oppressed. For example, in the late 1970s, In Argentina, when a military dictatorship took over the country after what was called the Dirty War, mothers of disappeared children gathered weekly in the central plaza of Buenos Aires, and they sang the Magnificat. They made large posters with Mary's words written on them, and they marched in front of the presidential palace. In response, the military banned any public display of Luke chapter 1. They saw it as a threat to their violent regime. They had to do this because they knew exactly what Mary's words meant. 
Her words are a challenge to anyone who thinks that power is their right. Anyone who is proud in the thoughts of their hearts and presumes that their position or their privilege cannot be challenged. But if the creator of the universe identifies himself with the humanity of an unknown poor Jewish girl in a corner of the empire, then those who are at the center of power and influence are on notice. The God of Israel is the God who overturns human powers and delivers those who are in need of help. By looking backwards to God's faithfulness and forwards to his renewal of the whole world, the Magnificat holds together both spiritual and social concerns. When you look back to God's faithfulness and, and the history of human failure that makes it necessary, you realize that the ultimate deliverance that we need can only come from above. This is what the gospel promises. Only God can overcome the powers of sin and death. And this begins in Mary's womb in the incarnation and, and culminates on the cross as Jesus dies for the sins of the world. And this is true. But traditional theology can sometimes so spiritualize the Magnificat that it would seem to have nothing with social concerns. Others go in the opposite direction. They stress the critique of human power in Mary's words so much that it becomes only about social and political liberation. In fact, what we find here is an integration of the personal and the social, the spiritual and the political. For example, when Mary says that God has shown strength with his arm, she is evoking imagery from the Exodus story, where God's strong, outstretched arm is a repeated theme in his deliverance of the people from Egyptian slavery. He defeats Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea and brings his people to the other side. They still must go through the wilderness and, and face other enemies to reach the promised land, but the critical, liberating victory has already been won. In the same way, Mary proclaims that in her pregnancy, in the coming of Christ, God is already accomplishing the liberating victory that will echo down through the ages. And when you enter into that story, and you believe that God's victory is also for you, and that you have been freed in the deepest possible way from chains of self-centeredness and greed, then the result will be a compassion for others, spiritually and materially. It will humble you and soften your heart towards those who struggle because you know your own need for grace. As Tim Cowher says in a quote that I included in the reflections uh, in the bulletin, a sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable outcome and sign of true faith. By such deeds, God can judge true love from lip service. This brings us to our last point. Mary looks backwards to God's promises and forwards to this final fulfillment, but she also looks up. Above all, the Magnificat is a song of praise. That's what the word means. Magnificat is just the Latin verb to magnify, 
in the sense that Mary uses it in, in verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. To magnify the Lord is to say that he is great and worthy of praise. C.S. Lewis, in his reflection on the Psalms, says that after he became a Christian, praise was one of the hardest aspects of the Christian life for him to grasp. He couldn't understand why God would need our praise, and the command to praise God seemed to force it or, or to cheapen it. Then Lewis had an insight that changed his understanding of praise, and I think it can help us to enter into the kind of praise that, that Mary models for us. Lewis realized, he says, he says, that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. And he, he wrote this, the world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers praising their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. People enjoy what they pray, what, what, what they, people praise what they enjoy in value. And then, they spontaneously urge others to join them in the praising. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? Our praise of God is often shallow because we try to skip to praising God without first enjoying him. But when we meditate on what God has done for us, until, like Mary, our souls are overwhelmed by his goodness, then you will magnify the Lord. When you see God's beauty and goodness, you will praise him. If you are a person of praise and joy, people will see that you have a very different mindset about the challenges that we face in this world. Often, our culture gives us a false dichotomy between either a traditionalism focused only on the past or a naive idealism focused only on the future. It's easy for religious people to fall into the traditionalism as if everyone just needs to conform to the values of the past to make the world right. But when you only look to the past with no concern for reform or improvement, it can make you complacent and self-satisfied. On the other hand, when you only look to the future, it can make you critical and uncompromising about anyone who is too slow to embrace your vision of what the world should look like here and now. Both traditionalism and a naive idealism often share one thing in common, a lack of joy. In Mary, we see a radically different approach. It's different than both of these. Mary praises God with confidence and assurance while still standing in the midst of a broken world. She rejoices in the present, even though the final fulfillment still lies in the future. 
You know, Mary has not yet seen anything. She hasn't felt the kicks of any baby inside of her. She receives everything by faith, not by sight, based only on the proclamations to her of Gabriel and Elizabeth. She has faith. She's trusting in the Lord. The blessing that she receives here is very similar to the one that Jesus will offer to all believers after the resurrection. When he says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the good news, friends. When you believe that God has acted in the person and work of Jesus for you and for the world, it changes everything. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. When you look to the cross as the fulfillment of all God's promises, then you can trust him for the future. When you start with what God has done for you that you could not do for yourself, then you also will care for those who need someone to act on their behalf. You will be a defender of the weak and the vulnerable. You will not be puffed up by whatever power or wealth that you've been given to steward. Instead, you will move towards the suffering and the hurting. As N.T. Wright says, when we learn to read the story of Jesus and see it as the story of the love of God, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, that insight produces again and again a sense of astonished gratitude, which is very near the heart of authentic Christian experience. Astonished gratitude. That's what we need. Let me end with an illustration. In C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, at the very end of the story, the three children who are the main characters, Edmund, Lucy, and Eustace, have reached the end of their journey across the sea, and they're looking for a way into Aslan's country. Aslan is the great Christ figure, the Lion King who reigns over Narnia, and the children long to be with him forever. As they're walking along through a grassy meadow, they see something white, and it's so bright white on the green grass that they can't even look at it. But as they get closer, they realize it's a lamb, and the lamb speaks to them. Come and have breakfast, said the lamb in its sweet, milky voice. Then they noticed for the first time that there was a fire lit on the grass and fish roasting on it. They sat down and ate the fish, and it was the most delicious food they'd ever tasted. Please, lamb, said Lucy, is this the way to Aslan's country? Not for you, said the lamb. For you, the door into Aslan's country is from your own world. What, said Edmund, is there a way into Aslan's country from our own world too? There is a way into my country from all the worlds, said the lamb. But as he spoke, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold, and his size changed, and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy. You see what's happening here? 
Aslan is the lion, and he is the lamb. Lewis is taking this imagery directly from Revelation uh, chapter 5, where the Apostle John is told to look for a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he turns and looks, and he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus is the lion, the Lord whom, if we saw his glory, we would fall down on our faces before him, and he's the lamb who was slain, the Savior who gave himself for our sins. Friends, when we see that the Lord of glory has looked on our humble estate and poured out his love for us, then we will magnify him with Mary. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would give us today a greater vision of your holiness, your loving kindness, your mercy, and your grace. Help us to see, uh, to help us to see you as you are, to know that you welcome us into your presence despite all our failures and sin. You have not kept distant from us, but you are always moving towards us in your love. And so we thank you and we praise you today for who you are and, and all that you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.